take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to the book of Luke. The book of Luke. As being a pastor, I, I, I'm glad and thankful that the Lord has brought me here, but has given me the opportunity and the freedom to take my time Amen. and go through book of the Bible that is just proliferated with truth that is not something that you can just rush through, Amen. that you can take your time through because my my hope is to get through the book of Luke and then go right into the book of Acts, simply because they are both books that are married together because of the writer, the penman of the books. God is the author, but Luke was the writer of the book. He's the one that wrote both books, and they are just a complete history, if you would, of the ministry of Jesus Christ, but then the ministry of the local church there as it began to spread the gospel to the unknown world at the time in the book of Acts. And so that is my dream. That is my hope that I can, the Lord tarries, that we can get through all those. You know, that you say, well, how long is that going to take? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> that Probably. And if not, then we'll get the whole of all of it when we get there. Amen. And we won't have to try to figure it out. We'll just know it all. We really will. Luke chapter 1 and verse 67. Luke chapter 1 and verse 67. Let's begin reading. And the Bible says, And his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Ghost and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for this morning. We thank you, Lord, for the song service, for us just being able to worship you and praise your name for all that you've done for us and simply because of who you are. Be with us now as we look into your word and the, the praise of Zacharias and how he praised you as we ought to praise you as well. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Notice as we read here, verse 67 gives us an indication of something about Zacharias that as God has opened his mouth and as God has given him a son whose name is John, his response is to praise God. Notice my our Bibles say, and he was, Zacharias was filled with, with what? The Holy Ghost. He was filled with the Holy Ghost. Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Ghost. John, in his mother's womb, was filled with the Holy Ghost. And now we find his father, Zacharias, being filled with the Holy Ghost. And the response of being filled with the Holy Ghost is to prophesy and to proclaim who God is. Amen. That's how he starts out. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Number one, we find prophecy performed. Prophecy performed. As he says there, he's, notice his how he, the phraseology, the sentence structure. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people. You say, well, he hasn't even, Jesus Christ hasn't even died on the cross. He hasn't redeemed. Oh, but it was in process. It was in the process, and Zacharias already knew that. He already saw redemption, already Israel already being redeemed because prophecy had just been fulfilled in the birth of his son, John the Baptist. And he already saw it playing itself out that God had visited them and redeemed Israel. The word redemption means a ransoming 
buying back that which belonged to something else, someone else, or the power of someone else. You know, when Jesus Christ came to redeem mankind, he came to purchase us from the awful penalty and captivity of sin. And he paid the price in full. We sing that song, Jesus paid it all, or paid in full. There's no other payment that can be made to redeem us from the curse of the law and from sin. There's no other payment need to be made. Jesus Christ paid it in full by the blood that he shed for us on the cross of Calvary. We cannot pay for it. We cannot say, well, <clears throat> Lord, it's a loan, you know. You loaned redemption to us, so let us pay you. That's not how it works. When he paid that redemption, when he paid that ransom for us, all he wants to do is to freely give us salvation. To where we don't have to work for it. To where we don't have to pay him back. There's no payback. There's no loan interest. There's none of those things. He is giving you a gift that he's already paid for. It stops being a gift when we come to God and say, Lord, let me pay you back for it. Let me give you something for it. If There was a, something we were looking through the other day, and we opened it up. and like, oh, we can give this as a gift. Well, Pastor Rose is like, we can give this as a gift to somebody. I'm like, okay, that sounds great. But it wouldn't be a gift if I handed it to you and said, well, let me pay you for it. And I accepted the payment. That's not a gift. Therefore, it's not free. Jesus Christ, when he came, he does not expect anything in return. He really doesn't. It's an unconditional payment. If we freely receive it, you know what's going to happen? He's going to save us. And because of love that he had for us, he loved us first, and we love him in return. Because of that, we will freely then give of ourselves. Amen. That is what takes place. We can never pay God back for what he's done. Never. I, I don't care. You can set up a payment plan in a book and say, well, this is how much I've done for the Lord. It doesn't matter. You can never, ever outserve and outgive God. Amen. There's nothing you could ever do to pay back what he did for us on the cross. The only thing that we can even come close to being thankful is to serve him. Amen. We can lip say thank you, but to actually show it is something different. Same thing with James. You know, you read in the book of James, show me thy faith by thy works. That's what he says. You know, you say you have faith, prove it. Show me you have faith by your actions. He says, if you have faith and you don't do anything to show that you have faith, then your faith is dead. I'm paraphrasing, but that's what it really comes down to. So when we say we have faith, we need to show that we have faith by our actions. By our works that we do. By us saying, you know what, I have faith that God is going to take care of us through this. Or I'm stepping out by faith into this new ministry, this new opportunity that God has for me, and I need to step into that, and you're showing your faith in God by taking that action. Redemption. The way was prepared for the was being prepared for the Redeemer of all mankind to come, and John was going to be a part of that. It's interesting, but so were Zacharias and Elizabeth. God used them to bring about the forerunner of Christ. They were being a part of the fulfillment of prophecy. 
in verse 69, we read here, And hath raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. He's not talking about John. He's not talking about John. John was not. John was not of the line of David. John was of the line of Aaron. Which tells us then what? He's part of the priesthood. You know what line they were a part of? Let me go back and do all the... They were part of the Kohathite priesthood. What were the Kohathites' responsibility? Their responsibility was to carry the Ark of God. That was their responsibility. Now look where John is. He's about to be, if you would, the carrier of the mercy seat on earth. God in the flesh. He's about to be the forerunner of that very thing. That's that's a big responsibility. But he's already full of the Holy Ghost from his mother's womb. He was going to be able to fulfill it because God was with him. We've already read that, that God was with him. Raised up in horn. In Psalm 132, verse 17, the Bible says, There will I make the horn of David to bud. I have ordained a lamp for mine anointed. His enemies will I clothe with shame, but upon himself shall his crown flourish. Prophetic. Prophetic. It would appear that the Lord kept his promise there in the book of Psalm. That he kept his promise and that he continues to keep his promises. You know, you read about, people say, well, God doesn't keep all his promises. Some of his promises haven't been yet fulfilled. (laughs) You know, he promises in John 14 that he's going to prepare a place for us. Okay, so if he's made that promise, he is going to perform it and keep it. We're not going to get, you and I are not going to get to heaven and have an unfinished place. It's not going to be unfinished. It will be finished and it will be the best place ever. It will it will not have any blemish. It will not be roughshod. There will be no shortcuts in creating what he's creating for us. He is the perfect architect. He's the perfect carpenter. He knows what he's doing when he says, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. You know, we have all these houses that are being built on our road there at McKay. And let me just tell you, the the place that God is preparing for me is much better than that. And will be, is worth way more. Because for him to go and do that, he shed his blood for me. To go and prepare that place for me, that he might come again and receive me unto himself. You know, it took many hundreds of years for this prophecy to be fulfilled of John the Baptist coming to earth and being the forerunner of Christ. Hundreds. Say, why did it have to take so long? Because it's all in God's time. Did we not sing that song this morning? In his time. So uh, as much as God's, it didn't matter if it would have been a thousand years. God promised and prophesied that this would happen and it happened. How many times have we been saying, well, he's going to return. He's going to return. They were saying it way before us. Were they not? They said it hundreds of years ago. 
thousands of years ago, they were already saying that he's going to return. Well, he's not here yet. So people are saying, well, maybe he's not going to. But he said he was going to. He's going to. He promised that he would. Even the angels confirmed that when he, they said, why stand you here a-gazing? They confirmed what Christ already said he was going to do. As you have seen him go, so he will return in like manner. That's what they said to the, to the disciples. So they're just confirming what Christ had already said to them. Aren't you glad the angels were on board? <laughs> that they're in agreement with the Son? They're in agreement with the Son. In verse 70, we read then there, as he, And as he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began. Wait a minute. Let's back up and reread that. It says, Zach Rice is really, I mean, he's he's just letting us know who he's really talking about. He says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he, the Lord God, hath visited and redeemed his people, and hath raised up, still referring back to the Lord God, and horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And he, the Lord God, spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began. He says, the prophets of old have already been telling us this day was coming. Amen. He says, let's go back to the old. You know, it's interesting. You can... Herod, you know, I don't want to, we're jumping a little bit ahead, but Herod, he talks to his wise men. Well, where is this king going to be born? Well, the Old Testament... The prophets say he's going to be born in Bethlehem. But it also does tell us that it was going to be the Messiah, the root of Jesse, the branch, and all those things in the Old Testament. That's what it said, right? So when it says that, they only get the king. They don't get that he's the Messiah. They don't get that he's going to be the horn of salvation. They don't understand that he's going to be all these things. They just look at the one word king and Herod's afraid. Verse 71, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us. Now, Zach Rice, he's saying there's a lot of people that hate us, Israel as a whole. And there's people that still hate Israel today. There's a lot of people that still hate Israel today. But let me tell you something. God still loves his people. I don't care what these people say, that God has forgotten Israel and left them off and has replaced Israel with the church, which is replacement theology. He's never done that. He still cares about Israel. Israel is God's wife when you read the Bible. He's not forsaken them. He's not forgotten. If anything, they've still rejected him. They are still rejecting him, and yet he still loves them. They are still his chosen people. They still are. But Christ has a chosen people, and that's us. Amen. And that's us. That we should be saved from our enemies. First John 3, 8 says, He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Hmm. I'll reread that again. 
He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. So the devil was sinning from the beginning when he decided to say, I will be like the Most High. Pride had already risen in his heart to say what he says there in Isaiah chapter 14. Right? I mean, that's pride was there. That's sin. He sinned from the beginning for this purpose. Because of that, for this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. And did Jesus Christ do that on the cross? He surely did. He destroyed the works of the devil when he shed his blood on the cross for you and I. Therefore, that sin may not have dominion over us any longer. That according to Romans 6, that it would not reign in our mortal bodies. He destroyed the works of the devil. The Lord not came out not only to save us from our sins, but also to destroy the works of the devil. So he also came to save us from our ultimate adversary, the devil. It seems at times that the devil gets the upper hand, but God does things God's way. And so sometimes we think the devil is winning when God is still in control of all things and still sitting on the throne. I was reading a psalm of Asaph, where Asaph said, why do the wicked prosper? He says, and then I went into the house of God and I saw their end. I saw their end. I believe that's Psalm 73. He saw their end. And there are times when it just feels like, oh my goodness, the wicked keep getting more. And the saints of God get less. And why do good things, why do bad things happen to good people? And why this and why that? God's still on the throne. You think he doesn't know what's going on? Ultimately, we know that we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Our Bible gives us time and time again the assurance of victory in Jesus. Over and over again. Why does he do that? Because he wants us to know that he has destroyed the devil's works. That, this, that Satan himself is already a defeated foe. But we, even as believers today, give Satan license to be more than what he actually is. We hand over things to him that, that we shouldn't have to hand over because we think we actually are living in the defeated realm when actually we should be in the victorious realm. That we are saved people. That God has given us his holiness, his righteousness, his grace, his mercy, his love, his goodness, his faith, all those things. He's given all those things to us so we have no excuse of not being victorious in him. On my own, I cannot be victorious. I can win at board games. I can win at this. I can win at that. But I cannot have victory over sin in the flesh on my own volition. I have to go to the Lord and the power of Christ in me have that victory over sin. 
I can't do it any other way and neither can you. People come to me, I've, I've talked with people over the years and they say, well, we struggle with this. Have you given it to the Lord? Well, no, I've just tried all this stuff. Stop trying. Give it to God and let him do it. He's the one that will get the victory over it for you. And then all you need to do is claim that promise that he is the victor and that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Claim that for your life. You know, you say, well, you're preaching a prosperity. I'm not preaching prosperity. I'm preaching victory. I'm preaching victory over sin. I'm preaching victory over whatever addiction that you may have, that we can have victory over those things if we just surrender it to God. I finished this book a couple of weeks ago. I was telling Pastor Rose about it, called him Yawning at Tigers. It says, don't, if you're trying to tame God, stop. That was the subtitle. We cannot tame God. We cannot get him, if you would, to do our bidding. We cannot compartmentalize God into a little genie bottle. We have to stop trying to tame him, and if you would, let him tame us. Let him tame our lives. Let him bring us under his control. Let him bring us under his control. Letter D, if you're taking notes, verses 72 through 73. To perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham. Notice it says remembrance. There is a remembrance that takes place here. The promise was made with Abraham back in Genesis chapter 17. For this sake of time, we won't go there, but take the time, read Genesis chapter 17 and the Abrahamic covenant that's made there. This promise is just not only to Abraham, but also a promise to those who would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as Abraham did. I was reading something this morning and studying some things out. The person made this statement. Adam had a works salvation. And I'm sitting there going, you don't know your Bible. Adam and all the Old Testament saints, when they offered up sacrifices, it was not a works salvation. It was still faith in God that saved them from their sins, not works salvation. There was no, no, I don't want to get into it. We'll get into it later. It doesn't change. God still saves the same Old Testament saints the same way he saves New Testament saints today. It's by grace through faith. It hasn't changed. Hebrews tell us that the blood of bulls and goats couldn't save them. It didn't cover their sins. All it was was a picture of the one that was coming. And that's where they were putting their faith in. They were putting their faith in a future Messiah that was to come and to save them from their sins. That's who they were putting their faith in. The Lord Jesus Christ of heaven and earth. They were not putting their faith in the sacrifice that they were making. All the prop, all the uh, priests, when they offered up those sacrifices, they were not putting their faith in that bull that they were offering on that altar. They were putting their faith in the promise and in the Jesus Christ that was to come to save them from their sins. That's who they were putting their faith in. That's where it went. 
They knew he already told them from the very beginning that the blood of bulls and goats, all it was was a picture of what was to come. It wasn't going to save them. You read the book of Leviticus and that you'll sit there and you'll be like, wow, that's a lot of work. And that's why people believed it was work salvation. But it wasn't. It was all about faith. It was all about faith. The individuals that have put their faith and trust in Christ are innumerable, are innumerable since the time of Abraham. See, Abraham wasn't saved by works. The Bible tells us in the book of Romans, and Abraham believed and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Abraham believed. And it wasn't about offering up a sacrifice. When he did believe, he believed God about the future that was to come. And about what Christ was going to do. The Bible even tells us that the gospel was preached unto Abraham. Think about that one for a while. See, these guys that think they know what they're talking about when they talk about covenant and all that covenant theology and all that kind of stuff and replacement theology and, and work salvation in the Old Testament and that it changed when Christ came to earth and now it's all under grace. What a bunch of baloney. It's always been by faith. Read Hebrews 11. By faith. By faith. By faith. By faith. It doesn't ever say by works. By works. By works. They had faith and then they did works. If people would just read their Bibles and take it for what it says. And stop reading between the lines. Or adding or taking away from. They'd actually probably get saved. Genesis 3 and verse 15. Brethren I speak after the man. Galatians. I'm sorry. Galatians chapter 3 verse 15. Brethren I speak after the manner of men. Though it, it be a but a man's covenant. Yet if it be confirmed. No man disannulleth or addeth thereto. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not unto seeds as of many. But as of one. And to thy seed which is Christ. And this I say that the covenant that was confirmed before God. Of God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. Though you think about Abraham, because he's talking about Abraham here, he says, These promises were made before the law came into effect. And the law did not disannul the promise that was made to Abraham. Didn't destroy the promise that was made to Abraham. If anything, it confirmed it even more. And he says, the law came 400 and some years after I gave that promise to Abraham. So what would change it? Nothing. All God was doing, he had, he was, he was building precept upon precept, line upon line. The promise never changed. 
just because he just because he gave the law to Moses did not mean that it took away the Abrahamic covenant that he gave to Abraham back in the book of Genesis. It didn't say, well, that wipes out that covenant. Now I'm making a new. No. It didn't do that. Aren't you thankful that when he keeps his promises, nothing changes that promise? Verse 74. That he would grant unto us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. Aren't you thankful that he delivered us out of the hand of captivity of sin? Out of the hands of the devil? Because that's who we served before he saved us. That's who we served. God saved us. He, he took us out of the servitude, if you would, of the devil. He, he, he delivered us. Notice he says that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. See, when we talk about that, it's like, we can serve God really without fear, but with fear. With fear, but with fear. Without fear, but with fear. You say, well, how does that work? Just, I guess, just come to the place of understanding that we have to fear God in such a way that we can do it without fear because we can approach the throne of grace with boldness because of what Christ did for us on the cross. I cannot, let's put it this way, in my flesh, I cannot go before God. But, because of the blood of Christ on my life, I can approach the throne of grace. I can't approach it any other way. I can't go before him in the flesh this way that I am and be okay with him. Before salvation, I was not, we were not okay with God. None of us were. God did not say, you know, you've done a really good job, you're good. Oh, you've done even, you're even better. That was not God. And that never has been God. He has viewed every single individual personally on the merits of what Christ did on the cross. Not anything that we did to deserve salvation, but what Christ did for us in our stead. And so he looks to see if we've accepted that or received that gift of salvation full and free and that the blood has been applied to the doorposts of our heart. That's what he's looking for. And then he says, it's not because of who you are. It's because of who my son is. That's what he's looking for. There's n that's why we can approach God. Because when we go before God, he's not viewing you. He's viewing you through his son. And when his son stands in the way, you know who he sees? Perfection. He sees perfection. And then we can go before God. I think, for me personally, sometimes I continue to view myself as not worthy. And we're not. But, because of what Christ did, and because Christ in me changes the game. changes it. It changes the whole 
life that I once had. And it changes the life that I now have. We are delivered to serve him. In Romans chapter 6, verse 22, the Bible says, But now being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. He says, you've been made free from sin and have become the servants to God. People are like, that's no fun. These individuals that say they have liberty to do whatever they want to don't know what grace is. They, they have no idea what grace is about. Does not Paul himself say, did grace abound that we might, you know, did did sin abound that great, you know, whatever the verse says. I know it says something. I don't want to paraphrase it to the extent where you don't understand it, but it goes to the extent of saying, do we sin? I think it's in Romans 6. Let's go to Romans 6. I don't want to mess it up. Romans 6. Verse 15, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? God forbid. When you read about God forbid, it's like a harsh, no. Why why would you do that? (laughs) Why would you want to sin under grace? Why would you want to say that you could be okay with sinning and be under grace and say, well, because I'm under grace, I can do whatever I want to. The Bible says over in Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, Verse 1 says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. And then, verse 13, I'll read that one. Galatians 5 and verse 13. It says, For brethren, we ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. So because he saves us, it does not. He does not give us a pass to continually be in sin. That's not why he saved us. He saved us from sin that we would no longer serve sin but serve him. That's the whole point of salvation. We get to serve a risen Savior. We get to serve a one who will bless us because of service. We serve one because of love for him. We should be excited that we get to serve God. We should be thankful that he saved us to serve him. Because those that serve the devil, they are not getting the reward that they think they're going to get. Amen. They live this life for themselves. Those that are saved live their life for God and others. That's who they live their life for. God, and then others a second. You know, we remember when we were growing up, I know it's been around for hundreds of years, joy, Jesus, others, you. That's the way life is supposed to be lived. Jesus, others, you. Romans 8.15 says, For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. 2 Timothy 1.7 says, For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and love and of sound mind. 
Hebrews 2.15, And delivered them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Hebrews 9.14, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? God did all things to purge our conscience so we would stop serving self and serve him. And this is all contained in the, this is all in the praise of, of Zacharias. It's interesting, but he's not even focused on John. His son has just been born. You would think that he'd write a song and praise John for being born and that he's a father and that he, he has a son and the son is the father. He's not even talking about John. He's praising God for Jesus that is to come. Hmm. I wonder what those that were think standing there as he was praising, like, shouldn't he be happy about John being born? Shouldn't he be excited that he has a, a man child? That God has given him a male? He's praising God for the one that is to come. Jesus. You know how much further along he's got? He doesn't have long and Jesus is going to be there. We see prophecy performed. Secondly, that was just point one. I guess we'll have to look up number two next week because I have like five points under each one. So we saw prophecy performed. Secondly, next week we'll look at prophet prepared. A prophet prepared. Isn't it interesting? Even when you read prophecies that have not yet been fulfilled, they will be. They will be. Front to cover. Front to cover. Every prophecy that's in there, when the new heaven and new earth are created, this book will be completed and fulfilled. Because that's the last, if you would, hoorah, when the new heaven and new earth is created. That means that every single little prophecy that is in the book of Daniel, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, all those prophecies that have not yet been fulfilled will be fulfilled before time ends. Before it's over. He's not going to leave one unfulfilled. He's not going to, oh, I forgot that one. That's not going to be God. He's going to fulfill them all in his timetable, in his time. And when it's all over, he will he will be saying, it is finished. It is finished. I can't even imagine eternity without all what we see going on. Because our finite brains can't see that. Can't. I don't know. I don't know about you, but my mind still can't comprehend eternity. You can't. And if I can say this, and I know that you probably understand that feeling of a little bit of fear and trepidation because I don't know what eternity is. And if you've been to heaven and come back and tell me what it's like, still might be a little fearful and trepidatious because did you really go? (laughs) We know of a couple men that did. 
And I'm pretty sure Paul didn't want to leave. <laughs> but God had things for him to do. These people that say they've been there, I just don't, I just can't see it. Because if I went there and saw Jesus face to face, I sure wouldn't want to come back. Why would I want to come back to this old world? How about you? I'd want to stay right where there was peace and harmony, no pain, no suffering. Everything was wonderful. Wonderful. We'd see loved ones. We'd see Jesus. We'd see the Father. We'd see Old Testament saints, New Testament saints. We'd get to see all of them. <clears throat> but there is this one song that says, My Savior first of all. Uh-huh. You know, they were awake. Zacharias was praising God for the Messiah to come. We should have that same praise, not only of what the Messiah has done, but what the Messiah is going to do. Amen. We should have that praise. Hearts bowed, heads bowed, eyes closed. <coughs> the Lord spoken to you this morning. Let him deal with you. If there's things that you need to surrender, surrender. Are you praising him the way he wants to be praised? Have you thanked him for who he is? Have you thanked him for all the blessings and benefits that he has given to you in your life? Have you really just sat and considered all the things that he has done for you personally? We can generalize it. We can think about others and what he's done for them. But what has he done for you personally? As the pianist plays.